0: Well, I already feel blessed in my boots by Candace leading us so well worship. Uh, we are on sermon number six in the Philippians series, and uh, back in July when I was praying through what did I want to preach on uh, this coming fall, and uh, kept being drawn to the book of Philippians, and uh, when I looked at it and I started rereading and just reacquainting myself with the book, and... And I came to chapter 2 and I was like, right, this incredible passage, uh, probably the mountaintop of theology about Jesus in the entire Bible. And I was like, wow, am I up to the task? Can I do this? And I thought, you know what, if I can't preach this well, if I can't give it my all, then I shouldn't even, shouldn't even try to tackle the book. Um, so I've done my homework. I've put in the work this week. I would appreciate you praying for me. Um, As the uh, famous poet Alexander Pope said, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. So we'll go in. Um, I'm indebted to one of my favorite preachers and authors, Daryl Johnson, uh, for showing me that this passage actually has three time periods, kind of covers three time periods. There is the time period before, before Jesus' birth, Before his two natures, fully God and fully human, were mysteriously combined in Mary's womb. And then the passage moves into during. Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death and resurrection. So there's before, there's during, and then there's after. When Jesus is resurrected and ascends to the right hand of God the Father, and we await his second coming. So we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. These incredible, amazing verses. It says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, <clears throat> excuse me, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. The scene is in heaven before the creation of the world. It's the moment within the Trinity when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, knowing what it will cost, knowing the price that will need to be paid for creation to occur, for human beings to be created with free will, to choose good or evil, to to stay faithful in their relationship with God, or to turn their back and run away in rebellion and sin. This is the moment when the Son, fully comprehending that such a decision would cost, does not hesitate to make that decision. Jesus knows who he is, as the text tells us, who being in very nature God. Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. They have always existed together. Jesus is equal with the Father in honor and prestige and power. But Jesus takes that knowledge and position and authority, and he makes the most incredible decision in all of history. It says he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That is so opposite of every other human ruler who has ever lived. It is so opposite of how Caesar was worshipped as a god in the very city in Philippi where Paul wrote this amazing letter to that little church. There was an imperial cult and Caesar was worshipped as god. You see, everybody down through history tends to use their power, their privilege, and their position to their personal benefit, not Jesus. And everything turns on his universal, universe-altering decision. says these amazing words, rather, he made himself nothing. The one at the very height of glory and power and prestige gave it all up. There's an amazing prayer in one of the Gospels, in the Gospel of John in chapter 17. Jesus, it's probably Jesus' longest recorded amazing prayer. Steve is looking at me. And yes, I really should have put that mic up, shouldn't I? I was just so excited about the passage, I forgot about my mic. Thanks, Steve. Uh, and so he's praying this amazing extended prayer. And, uh, and when you read it, you're kind of like, what? What is he praying about? But I think when you read Philippians 2, all of a sudden this sentence makes so much sense. It says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me Before the creation of the world. Now we get it. Jesus prays that prayer in John 17 before his trial, his beatings, his whippings, his crucifixion and death. Jesus is actually looking past all of that and praying for that moment when he is resurrected to new life. That his glory will be restored. The glory that he gave up before creation itself. Back in the summer, if you were with us, I did a little summer reading series, and we tackled different novels that had themes of faith or biblical ideas in them. And one of them was John Milton's epic, uh, Paradise Lost. And John Milton imaginatively, that's easy for you to say, John Milton imaginatively, thank you, plays out the scene briefly depicted here in Philippians. Now, remember, this is 16th century English, so it's a little unusual to our ears, but it's got a beautiful language, a beautiful rhythm to it. It says, Say, heavenly powers, where shall we find such love? Which of ye will be mortal to redeem man's mortal crime? And just the unjust to save? Dwells in all heaven charity so dear? He asked, but all the heavenly choir stood mute and silence was in heaven on man's behalf. That is an amazing scene, silence in heaven. Who could save humanity? No angel is, as amazing and powerful as they are was capable. And then it comes to the high point of Milton's entire epic. He says, all mankind must have been lost. A judge to death and hell by doom severe had not... The Son of God, in whom the fullness dwells of love divine, his dearest mediation thus renewed. Father, thy word is past. Man shall find grace. Behold me then. Me for him, life for life. I offer on me, let thine anger fall. Account me, man. I, for his sake, will leave thy presence. And this glory next to thee, freely put off, and for him lastly die. Well pleased on let me death wreak all his rage. Under his gloomy power I shall not long lie vanquished. Thou hast given me to possess life in myself forever. By thee I live. Well that was Milton's imaginative attempt to accurately describe the scene, and and we don't know, we aren't taken into that amazing scene in the Bible so we can't know for sure but I think Milton's pretty close without doubt it was the greatest decision in all of history who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Well, now that the decision has been made, the downward journey begins. Our second point is during. We've seen it before, now we see during. The text tells us the interesting thing, that he made himself nothing. He emptied himself of his prestige, his his honor, his privilege, by taking the very form of a slave. Now, that's a very unique kind of emptying. I think many human beings feel empty in life. They may have everything, but they are depressed, disillusioned, can't really see a point to it. Tennis star Boris Becker had a long and amazing career, kind of rose to prominence in about 1984 and had a good run all the way till 1999. He was at the very top of the tennis world and yet he later opened up and confessed he was on the brink of suicide. He said these words, he said, I had won Wimbledon twice before, once as the youngest player ever. I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. I had no inner peace. I was a puppet on a string. That's one kind of empty. That is not Jesus. His emptying was very intentional and deliberate and done with the greatest love and purpose imaginable the salvation of humankind and ultimately of creation itself jesus chose to empty himself of the prestige and privilege rich mullins was a christian singer songwriter died tragically in september of 1997 and rich mullins had written all the songs and music for his album the jesus record and so his band took all of those songs and uh, they went into the studio and pulled in other famous artists to do the vocals of it. And one of the songs that I still have on my playlist is, You Did Not Have a Home. Here's these incredible words from Rich Mullins. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. You have the shoulders of a homeless man. No, you did not have a home. And the world can't stand what it can't own, and it can't own you because you did not have a home. Homeless man. That's not the immediate description of Jesus that comes to our minds when we think of him. But that's exactly what Jesus chose to be. Mullins obviously took the lyrics from Matthew chapter 8 when this really eager potential disciple comes up to Jesus. And says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus' reply is recorded in verse 20. He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Jesus essentially saying to this guy, I love your enthusiasm, but just so you know, I'm actually homeless. Wherever we go, if you follow me, that inevitably means sleeping outdoors around a campfire with my disciples. Just thought you should know before you sign up to follow me. Now that's all part of Jesus emptying himself of privilege and status. The verses continue telling us that Christ was found in appearance as a man. When Jesus came into our world, he didn't stop being God. He added humanity to it. That incredible combination, 100% of fully both. Fully man, fully God. Now how that exactly works is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. But we don't need to know the exact interdimensional details between the spiritual and physical realms to simply look at Jesus' sinless life, His powerful miracles, and the resurrection to know that that was the case. No person who is human alone could ever do what Jesus did. Now the downward descent reaches its lowest part in verse 8, declaring he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. Now any person who dies at age 33 or 34 like Jesus did is tragic. But in the first century, to undergo crucifixion on a cruel Roman cross to die like a criminal between two thieves to die in the utter extreme of pain and suffering was absolutely the most shameful way to die at that point in history F.F. Bruce kind of takes us back into the first century and he says this is what it really meant he says in polite Roman society the word cross or in Latin Crux was a swear word. People didn't utter it in polite conversation. By the Jewish law, anyone who was crucified died under the curse of God. That's why the cross was so shameful. In making this downward descent from the absolute heights of glory status, and power to the very bottom of misery and shame. Jesus understands and undeniably demonstrates in the deepest and most significant way possible that he is for everybody. Jesus is actually died for the world ruler, for the billionaire, for the world-class superstar. He's for everybody in between, and he is for the humblest human being with no wealth, no training, no education, and has to do the most shameful job. Jesus is relatable to every single person on planet Earth. Nobody can look at him and say, well, you just don't know what it's like in my life. You don't know what it's like in my world. Jesus does. By his selfless downward descent, motivated by incredible obedience and incredible love, Jesus encompasses us all beginning to see why this passage is the absolute mountaintop of studying Jesus. This is our Jesus, church. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. And his example should cause some soul searching in each one of us. When I was in grad school I had a prof named David Dewart. He was my Greek language teacher for the first two semesters. And one day, all of a sudden, he just kind of took a break from the Greek, and we were looking at this passage, Philippians 2. He says, I got a story for you. He says, uh, he says about seven years ago, he says, I wrote a paper on Philippians 2. And it uh, got a lot of attention, and uh, the Society of Biblical Literature contacted him and said, we've read your paper. It is phenomenal. We want you to come to the next big Society of Biblical Literature uh, symposium in Chicago. So they sent him plane tickets, and uh, he hops on the plane. Off he goes to Chicago. They put him up in a beautiful hotel, and uh, he presented his paper, and he got to hang out with the other academics and chit-chat over wine and cheese parties, all those kind of (coughs) things. And he said he finished up those three days, and then he was flying back to Vancouver. And he flipped open his Bible, and he read the passage again. And he said it hit him like a ton of bricks, like a lightning bolt out of the blue. And he realized in that moment that the pattern of Jesus was going from the highest heights of glory down and descending. And he realized in that moment his life was doing the exact opposite trajectory. It was going up. And it caused him the deepest moment of kind of soul-searching in his life. And he got back to Vancouver, and he, he spent some time in prayer with his wife, and he kind of showed her what, what God had sh- revealed to him. And they made a momentous decision. They decided to sell their home at that point. They lived in a nice part of Vancouver. And they moved to the downtown east side. They bought a, a junker house in disrepair. They fixed it up, planted a yard, and started loving the people on the street day in and day out with dignity and compassion. Rich Mullins, the Christian musician I mentioned earlier, he did an amazing thing with all the money he got from concerts and album sales. He formed a board of trusted people, some of his good friends and people who had been mentors and and leaders in his life. And he formed the board and he said, here's how this is going to work. Every penny I make from every concert, every album, anything I do, it's all going to flow through you guys as the board. And he said, every year I want you to look up and find out what is the average working salary of a construction working dude in the United States. In the early 1990s, that was about $48,000. And he said, that's what I want you to pay me that year. The rest of the money was managed by the board. Some was given to his local church and some to key Christian charities, especially ones that worked with American indigenous youth. Pretty outstanding. That's just two examples of how this passage has altered people's lives. So what is the example of Jesus and his downward descent what is that going to cause you to reevaluate in your life? Now I want to say this morning, it's, it's not wrong to work hard, make lots of money, or even to be honored for what you do. But the one thing this text won't allow us to do is be selfish. It won't allow us to simply spend everything we've been blessed with on ourselves. It won't allow us to simply hoard the glory or honor or praise. Completely for ourselves and it certainly won't allow us to neglect the poor and the desperate and the under resourced what does it mean to you <coughs> I don't know what the implications are for you but I do know that when we follow Jesus path of downward descent the journey fills us with more joy more purpose and more satisfaction than we can get from having billions in the bank. As one of my favorite preachers, Daryl Johnson, says, we are most truly human when we most completely reflect the character and the heart of God. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, two-thirds of the journey is done. We've seen before, we've seen during, now comes after. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and everyone acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. (coughs) C.S. Lewis is famous for writing the seven Narnia books for children. pointed out that these books aren't kind of uh, just a one-to-one allegory for the Christian faith but they're very parallel and Lewis gave himself this question Excuse me. he said given a world like Narnia what would the Redeemer look like and in the world of Narnia Aslan is pictured as a lion Obviously, the biblical imagery there is that we call Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah. (coughs) Lewis brilliantly tells the story of four kids that go to Narnia, and one of them, Edmund, man, I don't know what's going on. (coughs) Edmund is led away into sin. He becomes a traitor to Aslan, to his brothers and sisters, and finally Aslan has to willingly lay down his life for Edmund, and by implication for the rest of us who are traitors, who have turned our backs on God. And in chapter 16 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis brilliantly plays out the resurrection of Aslan in a way that kids can understand. But when I reread it this week, I realized, man, he's giving us something deeper as well. Something that we as adults can understand. Aslan has been put to death, and finally the next morning, dawn begins to break. <coughs> At that moment, they heard from behind them a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken a giant's plate. What's that? said Lucy, clutching Susan's arm. I I feel afraid to turn around, said Susan. Something awful is happening. The rising of the sun you are giving you're saving me, thank you. Something awful is happening. The rising of the sun has made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed. Oh, we got a Better ones? okay. <laughs> uh, I'm upgrading. We started with halls, now we're going Ricola. those are you really about. The stone table was broken in two pieces by a great that ran down it from end to end. and all of a sudden there was no aslan. Oh, oh oh no, cried the two girls, rushing back to the table. Oh, it's too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have even left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it magic? Yes, said a great voice behind their backs. It is more magic. They looked around, and there, shining in the sunrise, larger than they had seen him before, shaking his mane, stood Aslan himself. Oh, Aslan, cried both the children, staring up at him, almost "'as much frightened as they were glad. "'Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan?' said Lucy. "'Not now,' said Aslan. "'You're not, not a,' asked Susan in a shaky voice. "'She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost.' "'Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. "'The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell "'that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. "'Do I look it?' he said." Oh, you're real, you're real, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him with kisses. But what does it all mean, asked Susan. When they were somewhat calmer, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. What a beautiful, insightful Retelling of the good news of the gospel. You know, as an adult who is choosing to follow Jesus, we are meant to make the connection with the stone table that Aslan died on and the stone tablets that God gave to Moses with the heart of the law, the Ten Commandments written on them. The death and resurrection of Aslan cracks that stone table. A visual way of stating that Jesus' death and resurrection fulfilled the requirements of the law completely and utterly that's how the lowest point of suffering shame and death is transformed into the heights of glory (coughs) therefore God exalted him to the highest place gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What seemed in that moment like the great catastrophe has been flipped upside down, and the dramatic healing results flow out to all of us throughout history. Jesus' great decision and his great descent is followed by the greatest redemption and ascent... <clears throat> in all of history the entire passage it's been pointed out is like a giant U: jesus descent his death on the cross and then his resurrection to glory now unchurched people wonder why do we as christians bother every single week why do we bother to gather what's the deal with us coming together and going to a church service why sing his praise Why pray in His name? Why read Scripture with energy and reverence? Why give of our finances? Why serve? And Philippians 2 has a very simple answer. Because He deserves it. (coughs) And here's the amazing product, byproduct. When we acknowledge, when we do what Philippians 2 tells us to do, When we acknowledge the journey that Jesus went on and the depths of his suffering and then the heights of his glory, when we worship him in that way, we are changed in the process. The Apostle Paul ends this whole section by saying, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then this amazing sentence he says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Sounds like a pretty great promise. Amen? Corey, come and pray for us.